Salvador Dali is a liar, with an exaggerated sense of self-worth who only makes art to make money. He is an extrovert who feeds off of being provocative. Salvador Dali is a reclusive artist who spends much of his time in solitude, reflecting on the nature of the unconscious mind with an admirable devotion to his wife and his artistic vision. Salvador Dali is a genius. Salvador Dali is an unreliable narrator. Salvador Dali is one of the most successful artists of the 20th century. All of these are true, and the fact that all of these are true leads anyone who loves Dali's work to run in circles when examining his history, his legacy, and his writings. If you are unfamiliar with him, and this is perhaps your first introduction to his work, I can guarantee you, you have seen at least his most famous painting, The Persistence of Memory. Have you ever seen a melting clock? That is thanks to Dali. It has become as much a trademark of him as his famous mustache. With all that said, anyone who attempts to understand Dali will inevitably get drawn into a hall of mirrors, a labyrinth that only gets weirder the further in you go, as many of his biographers can agree. The author Ian Gibson states in the opening to his Dali biography, Salvador Dali is not a trustworthy source of information about himself. From his adolescence, he set out consciously to become a myth, and he continued to work at being Dali even after he had achieved his goal." Unquote. But that's exactly what we're going to do today. Enter the mirrored corridors of Dali's mind, and meet the little boy in the center of the labyrinth. When we understand Dali the person, we will understand Dali the artist and the icon. The goal? To discover the origin of Dali's unmistakable style, to uncover what truly motivated him, and to leave the labyrinth with a new appreciation for the creative process. Welcome to Creative Codex. I am MJ Dorian. Let's begin. Dali's ambition is no secret. He believed that he was the greatest living painter of his time. You can read such beliefs in his diaries. In the book, Maniac Eyeball, he writes a passage that really sticks out. It's about his teenage years in Figueras. I think it speaks to the origin of his ambitions. He says, Most human beings seemed like wretched woodlice to me, crawling about in terror unable to live their lives with courage enough to assert themselves. I deliberately decided to emphasize all aspects of my personality and exaggerate all the contradictions that set me that much more apart from common mortals, especially to have no dealings with the dwarfs, the runts that were all around me, to change no wit of my personality, but on the contrary to impose my view of things, my behavior, the whole of my individuality on everyone else. I have never deviated from this line of conduct. 
so I became more and more of an oppositionist by design. I spit on everything with voluptuous delight. Tears of rage came to my eyes at the mere idea that I might not at every single moment be radically different from all others. My aim was to have absolutely nothing in common with anyone. Now this sounds like a cocktail of egotism and ambition, even bordering on megalomania. He goes on to describe his childhood as being filled with a strange penchant for provocation. He finishes the following passage by saying, They thought I was crazy, and I delighted in my loneliness and the lack of understanding by which I was surrounded. Unquote. It seems that early on he developed a taste for provoking those all around him. Any reaction would suffice, even his parents and his friends in school, as long as it meant that he was in control and he was getting attention. And more than that, Dolly seemed to develop a persona over the course of his life which embodies this character of the eccentric genius artist. I mean, don't take my word for it. Here's a clip of Dolly from a BBC interview. This is the sequence of my work because for the moment there's already three consecutive years of work. And today I start again and probably miraculously a chef, one masterpiece in the three or four next hours of time. Butterfly. In day-to-day life, he had this unrelenting compulsion to make everything art. Even passing human interactions were seen as opportunities for something truly Dalinian. That term, Dalinian, was an adjective Dali used to describe a scenario or image that fit his criteria for art, which you can think of as this, something absurd and surreal with a touch of the sublime. For example, when he was giving a public lecture in London in 1936 about surrealism, he showed up dressed in a full antique diving suit with antlers and a wine glass glued to the top of the old-fashioned diving helmet. He slowly lumbered up to the podium and spoke into the microphone through the little circular viewing hole of the diving helmet. And apparently he almost asphyxiated himself in the process because he didn't have proper breathing equipment attached to that diving suit. But overall, a scene like this is truly Dalinian. Because he saw every human interaction as an opportunity to realize his persona, even his interviews are an exaggeration of himself. And in his published diaries, you get the sense his primary motivation is to present a narrative that always places him in the best possible light rather than a straightforward retelling of the truth. In Dali's world, truth is something to be adjusted, like the oil paint on a canvas, which you can push or pull or dilute and mix before it dries and becomes set for all time. So, we can say that there is Salvador Dali, the man born in a small town in Spain, who rose to international prominence as a painter. And then there is Dali, 
the immortal icon of the genius artiste. Dali is a caricature of Salvador Dali. Whether conscious or not, it becomes clear that he was highly aware of the public's perception of him. And throughout his life, he reveled in that curious spotlight, whether being adored, hated, or laughed at. I think it was all the same to him, as long as he felt he was in control of people's attention, as long as he knew that he was the one doing the provoking and on his terms. In that sense, it's no wonder how he achieved so much success in America, a country that has always had a fixation on individualism, especially when it is embodied so clearly in one entertaining package. I mean, look at Dali. His facial hair alone is entertaining. And then you hear him talk and see him move with his grand gestures. He made himself into a magnet for attention. So how do we begin to understand him and his art? Well, as he was an ardent follower of Sigmund Freud and the theory of psychoanalysis, he recognized the benefits of looking into the unconscious mind to better understand himself and other people. So let's say we follow his lead. We will better understand the art of Dali and the persona he constructed by looking first to his childhood the place where the wheels of much of our own destinies are set into motion. Part 1. The Three Salvadors Dali was born in 1904 in Figueras, Spain. It's a small town whose main claim to fame is the fact that it is his birthplace. I'm not kidding. And it features a large museum dedicated to the artist, which he designed himself in the last two decades of his life. But right from the start, we see a complication in his childhood. There are three Salvadors, each which became inextricably linked in his mind. And it is the relationship between these three Salvadors which likely is the source of much of Dali's character, including his overly ambitious dreams, his overtly provocative tendencies, and his fixation on death. The name Salvador was a family tradition, so there is the first Salvador, his father. Dali's father was a successful notary in the town of Figueras, and expected that Dali would follow in his footsteps into law, as, of course, these stories always go. Through progressive ups and downs, Dali's father would support his son's ambitions for painting, paying for his studies at university, and also grow increasingly frustrated with his son's stubbornness and unconventionality. In later years, their relationship was so fraught that Salvador, the father, officially disowned Dali, saying he was no longer part of the family. Then there was the second Salvador, which is Dali himself. But the third Salvador is someone who does not have a voice of his own. It is Dali's older brother, who tragically died before Dali's birth from a viral infection. He was, by all accounts, dearly loved. The death left an unhealable wound in his parents' hearts, and it was exactly nine months and ten days after the death of Dali's older brother, Salvador, that Dali was born, as if Dali was conceived 
in the shadow of grief and the urgency to have a son in the family. It's clear that Dali's childhood was colored by the shadow of his deceased brother, Salvador. In the book, Maniac Eyeball, The Unspeakable Confessions of Salvador Dali, he writes, I lived through my death before living my life. At the age of seven, my brother died of meningitis, three years before I was born. This shook my mother to the very depths of her being. This brother's precociousness, his genius, his grace, his handsomeness were to her so many delights. His disappearance was a terrible shock. She was never to get over it. My parents' despair was assuaged only by my own birth, but their misfortune still penetrated every cell of their bodies, and within my mother's womb, I could already feel their angst. My fetus swam in an infernal placenta. Their anxiety never left me. Many is the time I have relived the life and death of this elder brother, whose traces were everywhere when I achieved awareness in clothes, pictures, games, and who remained always in my parents' memories through indelible affective trauma, a kind of alienation of affections, and a sense of being outdone. All my efforts thereafter were to strain toward winning back my rights to life, first and foremost by attracting the constant attention and interest of those close to me by a kind of perpetual aggressiveness. There's a strange reflection we can make here with another creative genius we covered in episode 5, Nikola Tesla. Tesla's childhood also took place in the shadow of his deceased older brother. In Tesla's case, he was already around and old enough to witness the emotional trauma and its effects on his parents and the undoubtable effects it had on him. We know that all children feel a pressure to receive their parents' approval and acceptance, and one can imagine that need for approval becomes even more intense when you see them in perpetual grief seemingly always mentioning the missing sibling, and feeling like you are always measured against the ghost of their potential greatness. It's really a strange place to be, and certainly one that we know today would greatly benefit from family therapy and counseling. I don't think that was an option back then, and in Dolly's childhood either. Dolly goes on to say... The dead brother, whose ghost was there at the start to welcome me, was, you might say, the first Dalinian devil. My brother had lived for seven years. I feel he was a kind of test run of myself, a sort of extreme genius. His brain had burned out like an overheated electrical circuit through unbelievable precociousness. It was no accident that he was named Salvador, like my father, Salvador Dali Ikusi, and like me. He was the wisely loved. I was but loved too well. In being born, my feet followed right in the footsteps of the adored departed, still loved through me, perhaps even more than before. The excess of love lavished on me by my father from the day of my birth was a narcissus wound, one I had already felt in my mother's womb, only through paranoia, that is, the prideful exaltation of self did I succeed in saving myself from the annihilation of systematic self-doubt. 
I learned to live by filling the vacuum of the affection that was not really being felt for me with love of me for me. I first conquered death with pride and narcissism. Well, Dali admits to a lot here, and throughout his career one can see his childhood appearing countless times as a subject of symbolic interest. Often when you see any landscape in his paintings, the landscape is thoroughly Spanish, showing seaside rock formations, cliffs, flatlands that were very familiar to Dali as he spent many hours staring at them in his childhood. This can interestingly be compared to someone like Leonardo da Vinci, whose landscapes were naturally the scenery he saw in Italy all around him. It seems a great artist is open to the influence of the environment around them and is able to take the mundane and elevate it to the profound. There is a shore near Port Legat in Spain called Cape Creus, which Dali says inspired countless visual illusions for his young mind. The strange and massive rocks on that shore have been sculpted by the water over centuries to form shapes that look distinctly like faces or animals, anything that a child's mind might entertain. One large rock at Cape Creus, which stands on what bizarrely resembles an appendage, even inspired Dali's 1929 painting, The Great Masturbator. Yeah, that's the title. I know. Welcome to Dali World. And when you compare the painting with that unique seaside boulder Dali talked about later, the link is clear. But one important note. Hold the train. We have already made a mistake, which has been made by countless biographers. We trusted Dali's words. And why should we doubt them? He wouldn't lie about the death of a sibling, right? Well, his statements are deceptions. The truth is like oil paint, meant to be adjusted to fit the larger picture. Let's rewind. Dali says his older brother was seven years old when he died, but records and accounts from his family say he was 22 months, just under two years of age. Why would Dali choose to deceive us about this? Is it to make his parents' anguish more believable? To gain more sympathy from the audience? Is it to prop his theory up that his older brother had a clear genius which he always felt inferior to? Here is the author Ian Gibson again on that topic. In The Secret Life, Dolly states that his brother was seven years old, not 22 months when he died, and that his demise from meningitis, he alleges, in blatant disagreement with the death certificate, occurred three years before his own birth, not nine months. He also says that his brother had the unmistakable facial morphology of a genius, showing signs of alarming precocity. While the child is pretty, nothing about its mien suggests the unmistakable facial morphology of a genius, or the alarming precocity to which the painter refers. Nor does another picture of the child sitting with a somewhat dazed expression on the knee of his proud father. Unquote. And then the real kicker. Dali completed a painting in 1963 entitled Portrait of My Dead Brother. As a work of art, it's really compelling. It shows a floating head of a young boy overlaid onto a mysterious desert with shadowy figures within its landscape. 
The portrait of the boy is represented as dots, the way an old newspaper photo would appear if you zoomed in especially close. I personally really like the painting, but it's again a lie. The photo is not his deceased brother, as he claimed to the public at the time and at the exhibition. His brother was barely two years old when he died, and the boy in the painting could easily be ten years old. It is likely an image Dolly found from some newspaper clipping, and he adjusted it for the purpose to fit into the narrative of his persona. So what is he doing? Is Dolly manipulating us for our pity and affection? Is he just trying to provoke a reaction? Why even lie? He had a real photo of his real deceased brother he could have used. And it's not like having the face of a two-year-old instead of a ten-year-old would make or break that painting's message. Well, welcome to the labyrinth of Dolly's mind. Just when you find something that looks like truth, uh, you realize you are only staring at a warped mirror, which is distorting the truth that you are seeing. But despite what you may say about his propensity for lying, the man was brilliant. Truly something strange and rare. I still can't tell whether he was a genius, but he was certainly a very unique workaholic. Here's one example. He had this special method for inspiring the dreamlike images and symbols that we see in his paintings. When he wanted a new idea for a painting, his goal was to arrive on the threshold of sleep, that moment where you are just entering a dream. And from that unique state of mind, he would witness many of the compositions of his paintings. In psychology, this state of mind has a name. It's called the hypnagogic state. That's spelled H-Y-P-N-A-G-O-G-I-C, hypnagogic. But here's the problem with that. Most people forget 90% of their dreams when waking, right? Dolly's discovery was that you can train yourself to reach that state, grab the necessary dream content, and make your escape. In that moment of the hypnagogic state, your mind is incredibly receptive to the symbols and memories in your unconscious mind. It's akin to a waking dream with which you have some degree of influence. And here's the best part. Dolly's method is simple enough that you can try it without any practice. It's called the falling spoon method. And the following instructions are the exact steps Dolly would take when he was using this approach. For the falling spoon method, you will need three things. A chair, a spoon, and a plate. Strange, yes, but let me explain. Set aside 15 to 20 minutes of uninterrupted time. Turn off your cell phone and anything else that may startle you awake. Important note, uh, be mindful of whether you had coffee before trying this as it might make it more difficult for you to reach a sleeping state. Now, sit in a comfortable chair. Place the plate between your feet on the floor. Then, hold the metal spoon in one hand, letting your wrist hang off of your leg, suspending the spoon above the plate by the loose grip of your fingers. Now, consider the project you're working on, or the art or the writing which you are currently developing. It can even be a problem that you're currently struggling with. You close your eyes and breathe deep, relaxing breaths. Fill your lungs slowly and completely, and exhale slowly and completely. 
you'll be surprised how effectively gradual and deep breathing can calm and soothe your body into a relaxed state. The goal is to relax so that you can become sleepy and begin entering into a nap. As your body relaxes and your brain waves slow down, you start to cross the threshold of sleep. Your muscles will naturally loosen and your hand will loosen its grip on the spoon. The spoon will fall onto the plate, causing a clang that will startle you a little bit. And upon being startled, immediately review the imagery or thoughts that were appearing in your mind before the spoon fell. Quite often, the imagery or thoughts will be content that you would not have otherwise been able to arrive at with your conscious mind without prolonged effort. The unconscious mind is a domain of tremendous abstraction. It is, in essence, the source of all creative insights. The falling spoon method. Give it a try. See what happens. Part 2. Dali in Paris. Alors regardez-moi. Oh non, pas avec ces yeux-là. J'en ai pas d'autres. Aussi. In his early 20s, Dali was studying fine art at a unique university called Residencia de Estudiantes in Madrid, Spain. It was here he honed his craft, studying the old masters and learning about the newest art movements of his time. When you look at his earlier paintings, like Composition with Three Figures, you see a tendency toward abstraction of form and cubist influence, which isn't present in the work he is most famous for in his later years, which borrowed more from realism. When you look at the paintings he did in his early 20s, like, for example, Apparatus and Hand, and compare it to the work of the French surrealist Yves Tengay, T-A-N-G-U-Y, it wouldn't be out of the question to confuse the two artists. For example, compare Dali's apparatus and hand with Yves Tengai's He Did What He Wanted. You see the same geometric shape floating on an unknown landscape, distorted human figures, and chalk-like sky writings. And Dali admitted to the clear influence from Tengai he even ran into the French artist's daughter in later years and told her with confidence, I stole everything from your father. I'm sure that didn't sit too well with her. At the Madrid University, Dali mingled with other Spanish artists, becoming friends with the filmmaker Luis Buñuel and the writer Federico García Lorca, among many other acquaintances who would have a profound effect on the rest of his life and art career. It was actually Dali's friendship with the filmmaker, Luis Buñuel, which gave him a jumpstart in the art culture of Paris and entry into the birth of the art movement that would be his trademark, Surrealism. Here is an excerpt from the Surrealist Manifesto, written by André Breton, which outlines the core principles of the movement. Psychic automatism in its pure state by which one proposes to express, verbally, by means of the written word, or in any other manner, 
the actual functioning of thought, dictated by thought, in the absence of any control exercised by reason, exempt from any aesthetic or moral concern. Unquote. Automatism, as mentioned by Breton, is the idea that an artist or writer can create art from a mental state where the conscious mind is moved aside, where the thinking and judging process is not involved. Usually the result is works of a more abstract nature, like the paintings of Juan Miro. In visual art, the intent is to arrive at imagery which is beyond the realm of the intellect and not dictated by the aesthetics of culture. So it makes sense for writing and painting. But how would that process apply to something like film? That's the thing. At this time, in the 1920s, no one had yet attempted to make a true surrealist film. Until 1929, when Dali's friend from the university, Luis Buñuel, was planning to do just that. Here's an excerpt from an interview with Dali on that collaboration, on the film En Chien Andalou. En Chien Andalou was very quick, because he wanted to do something in Gomez de la Serna's style, about a newspaper in which you see everything that happens, and in the end someone sweeps it up with a broom. I thought this was terribly vulgar. But, as he had 60,000 francs, I said, come at once, I'll write the script. I had just bought a pair of shoes, and I wrote En Chien Andalou on the shoebox." Now, hold on a sec. Stop the music. I think we fell for it again. Is Dali telling the truth here? And making himself out to be the hero of this story? Is he adjusting that truth? There is one man who would certainly know, the director and co-writer, Luis Buñuel. In interviews, he says that the script was written in seven days and that the original inspiration for the idea was based on two dreams, one by Dali, which consisted of ants coming out of a man's hand, and one by Buñuel, which consisted of an eye being cut by a blade. Here is Buñuel talking about the creative process of their collaboration. We were so attuned to each other that there was no argument. We wrote, accepting the first images that occurred to us, systematically rejecting those deriving from culture or education. They had to be images which surprised us and which we both accepted without discussion. Only that. For example, the woman grasps a tennis racket to protect herself from the man who wants to attack her. Then he looks around for something with which to counterattack and, asking Dali, I would say, what does he see? He'd respond, a flying toad. I'd say, bad. He'd say, a bottle of brandy. I'd say, bad. He'd say, well then, two ropes. Good. But after the ropes, what? He pulls them and falls because they're tied to something very heavy. Ah, then it's good for him to fall. With the ropes come two big dry marrows. What else? Two Marist brothers. That's it, two Marist brothers. Next, a cannon. Bad. A luxurious armchair. No, a grand piano. Terrific. And on top of the grand piano, a donkey. No, two rotting donkeys. Fantastic. That's to say, we encouraged irrational images to well up, unexplained. Unquote. Now, that sounds a lot more likely. 
and Chien Andalou became the first genuine surrealist film. On watching it, your mind struggles to find a story and a sense to the imagery. It's both humorous and disturbing, and it seems to function on some level of dream logic. It's in black and white, as it's from 1929, but if you are a bit squeamish, I would recommend not watching it, as it has at least two moments that are a bit provocative. Now, the buzz surrounding Unchien Andalou upon its release cemented Salvador Dali as a new artist in the Surrealist movement, specifically in Paris, where it premiered. But to his credit, much of his aesthetic was already in line with what the Surrealists were striving for. Here's Dali from an interview in a Spanish newspaper before he left for Paris. First, the only moral aim is to be true to the reality of my inner life. Second, my deepest purpose in art is to contribute to the extinction of the artistic phenomenon and to acquire international prestige. There, my definitive aspiration is always to express an alive state of mind. I hate Philistine putrescence. Unquote. As you can hear, Dali has a way with words that in some way matches his way with imagery. But it's that goal, hidden right in the middle of that statement, to acquire international prestige that would separate Dali from the other Surrealists, a movement he is often incorrectly credited as starting. Through Dali's association with what was becoming the hippest new art and culture movement, he rose to quick notoriety in Paris. His name was synonymous with the other artists, appearing side-by-side in gallery exhibitions, André Breton recalled the time period, saying, For three or four years, Dali was an incarnation of the Surrealist spirit, and made it shine with all its brilliance, as only someone could who had not played any part in the episodes, sometimes thankless, of its gestation. Unquote. But his notoriety and penchant for provocation began to earn him attention from the press that the other artists in the movement disagreed with, so much so that André Breton called a formal trial of Salvador Dali for one of the official meetings of the Surrealist group. And I, for one, I don't know what I'd give to be able to be a fly on the wall of that meeting. One of the principal offenses seems to have been that Dali uh, was at best apolitical and at worst an anti-communist. Now, during the 1930s, communism was still thought to be a desirable political system, and André Breton was fiercely in the favor of the proletariat and all things Lenin. Dali, on the other hand, was a bit of a question mark. It seems he would deliberately say anti-communist jokes and comments that made Breton and others unsure of him. But as we know from his personality, it may be just as likely that Dali enjoyed the game of provocation this created, right? He saw a hot-button issue and, despite his own best interest, thought it was a ripe topic to easily ruffle some feathers. And then there were the questionable subjects that Dali was exploring in his paintings at that time. In 1933, he exhibited a painting titled The Enigma of William Tell which depicts a bizarre distortion of the face of Vladimir Lenin, 
the Russian revolutionary communist whom many of the Surrealists idolized, including Breton, their leader. In the painting, Lenin is seen naked from the waist down, with his right butt cheek extended um, a comical distance. It's the only way to describe it. And that butt cheek is supported on a fork-like crutch. The painting, it so offended the Surrealists that they tried to damage it while it was being exhibited. But upon arriving at the gallery, they found it was, it was too high to reach with their canes. So what was going through Dolly's mind at this time? The whole incident of Dolly being put on trial and his own commentary on it is actually incredibly insightful to understanding who he was in both his penchant for absurdity, but also his quite admirable intellectual individualism. Here is Dolly from the book, Maniac Eyeball, describing being put on trial by Breton. On February 5th, 1934, André Breton had brought the whole upper echelon of surrealism together in his studio at 42 Rue Fontaine to pass on my behavior. I was running a fever and getting a sore throat. I dressed very warmly, put on my camel's hair coat, placed a thermometer under my tongue so as to keep vigilantly thinking about my case, and as I was about to leave, discovered I was forgetting to wear shoes. So I slipped them on without lacing them. When Gala and I got there, everyone was waiting for me, seated on sofas, chairs, or the floor. It was foggy with smoke. Breton, dressed in bottle green from head to foot, looked like the Grand Inquisitor and lost no time in beginning to intone the litany of my deviations and errors. He paced back and forth continually in front of my painting, La Gradiva, hung near the fancy window of the studio. I listened to him for a moment with attention, but my rising fever seemed more urgent to me, and while lending one ear to the recital of the Attorney General, I took out the oral thermometer and read it. It was 101.3, which was high. Medical practice in such a case calls for all possible measures to bring it down. I took off my shoes, overcoat, jacket, and sweater. Then I put my jacket and coat back on because in such cases, it is also important not to cool off too quickly. Then I put my shoes back on. Breton looked daggers at me during all this. He was nervously puffing his pipe. Dali, what do you have to say for yourself? I retorted that the accusations leveled against me were based on political or moral criteria which did not signify in relation to my paranoiac critical concepts. Breton was looking furious. The fact was that, having forgotten to take the thermometer out of my mouth, what I said was incomprehensible and I was spitting all over him. I fell to my knees, begging him to understand me. He yelled louder than I did. Then I got up, took off my coat and jacket and a second sweater that I threw at his feet, quickly putting the jacket and coat back on so as not to catch cold. The whole bunch broke out laughing." Unquote. Dali goes on to describe his first being introduced to Breton in 1928, having been introduced by the painter Miro. He says about Breton, "...he had immediately assumed the guise of a second father to me. I felt at the time as if I had been vouchsafed a second birth. The Surrealists, to me, were a kind of nourishing placenta 
and I believed in surrealism as in the tablets of the law. With unbelievable and insatiable appetite, I assimilated the letter and the spirit of the movement, which indeed corresponded so exactly to my deeper nature that I embodied it most naturally. The farcical nature of this whole trial was the more paradoxical since I was probably the most surrealist of the group, perhaps the only surrealist, and what I was being accused of in essence was being too much so. Priests imprisoned in their own scholasticism were trying to refute a saint. The story was as old as religion itself. Our first run-in came over my painting, The Lugubrious Game. In it, there was a rear view of a man whose underpants had well-formed excrements coming through them. Gala had already asked me whether I was coprophagous, merely putting into words what the whole world felt. The truth, as we know, was that I had to follow my unconscious impulses in order to free myself of my fears. But to Breton, this was not explanation enough. Claiming to be truly shocked by the picture, he demanded that I state that the scatological detail was meant to be only a sham. I tried to laugh it off by saying shit brought good luck and that its appearance within the surrealist corpus was a sign of the whole movement getting another chance. But I understood from that day forward that these were merely toilet paper revolutionaries, loaded with petit bourgeois prejudices, in whom the archetypes of classical morals had left indelible imprints. Shit scared them. Shit and arseholes. Yet what was more human, and more needful of transcending? From that moment I knew I would keep on obsessing them with what they most dreaded. I had, at one time, thought of acceding to power in it, but the idea of fighting to be second in a small village when I could be first in Rome turned my stomach. I was satisfied to drop a few bombshells in that small-town café where the Surrealist Revolution held its assizes. When I say all the Surrealists had those petit bourgeois taboos, I can prove it. They talked sex in a symbolic manner, and the Church Fathers would not always have been moved to censor their words. Aragon's most daring action was writing Le Con Diarine, a labored erotic novel, but within the group, buggery or anal fantasies were not recognized as being part of the arsenal of love, any more than pederasty or mysticism. I was completely amazed to find that Breton set up a whole scale of values to be observed in one's dreams. For instance, it was strictly forbidden to make a mention of any dream involving Mary, mother of Jesus, whom I often dreamt about, nor could I confess that I was obsessed by the hairs of her arse, that was held to be ill-bred and in bad taste, and woe betide any who did not respect the code of sexual fidelity by swiping a friend's wife or even being unfaithful to one's mistress. Desire and lust were no laughing matters here. There was freedom only to have great theoretical, platonic love affairs." Unquote. Whoa. That part uh, about the arseholes uh, was not easy to read with a straight face. So, um, Dali then goes on for the next two and a half pages, talking about the benefits of farts and his theories on poo, 
I'm not even joking. You can read that for your own enjoyment in the book, The Maniac Eyeball, Chapter 8. I certainly can't read any more of those with a straight face. Now I'll end Dolly's thoughts on the Surrealists with this final passage. Politics commitment, as the Surrealists called it, came between us. Marxism to me was no more important than a fart, except that a fart relieves me and inspires me. Politics seemed to me a cancer on the body poetic. I had seen too many of my friends dissolve into political action and lose their souls in it while trying to save them. Social science, economics seemed ridiculous to me, useless and especially phony. The inexact science par excellence, a lure set out with inextricable contradictions in which to trap artists and intellectuals. That is, those least fitted to resist emotional appeals so they could be mobilized in defense of causes that, come what might, would eventually be solved in natural course by the forces of history, in which intelligence played only a very minor part. Poetry and art were the great sacrifices to the historical event. Having no part of it seemed to me the only effective method of action and self-defense, the only honest way to deal with the poesy one carried within oneself like a rare and delicate flame." Unquote. The result of that trial in 1934 did not spell the end for Dolly and the movement. They reconciled for a bit, but it was a sign that there was already a split, that there would be problems down the road. Dolly's personality and apolitical tendencies were beginning to butt heads with the increasingly political purpose of the movement that Breton was encouraging. It would be in 1939 that Dolly was officially expelled from the Surrealist movement. The final straw was his seeming fixation on Adolf Hitler. He exhibited a painting entitled The Enigma of Hitler. Later in life, he even painted a more provocative painting called Hitler Masturbating. But of course, Dali always had a reasonable excuse for following through with such subjects. He would often claim that a great artist merely transmits the symbols in their own unconscious, and it is the public's job to project any meaning onto the art. Now, before we follow Dali to New York City, let's take another look at his creative process as it applies to perhaps his most famous painting, The Persistence of Memory. If you'd like to have a reference photo for this painting, as well as the others we'll discuss, you can go to my website where I've posted uh, good high-resolution images of these paintings. Uh, that site would be mjdorian.com forward slash codex. That's mjdorian.com forward slash c-o-d-e-x and you'll find some of these paintings in a nice high resolution. So the persistence of memory. Now, this oil painting shows a landscape or a coastal region dominated in the foreground by the paradoxical image of three large pocket watches, two silver and one gold, which appear to be melting and draped over a tree branch, the edge of a rectangle, and over a strange melted face that is itself draped on rocks on the ground. 
On the left, in the position closest to the viewer, is the back of a bronze pocket watch. From its center are emerging a cluster of ants. You can also notice a small fly sits atop the melting golden watch. Now, to my mind, the cluster of ants has this association with the ants emerging from a man's hand, which appeared in the film On Chien Andalou, which Dali famously worked on. Now, that odd sleeping face, to my mind, always resembled a draped figure laying down in the landscape, which seemed to be an echo of a very famous painting by Henry Rousseau called The Sleeping Gypsy, which also presents the viewer with a figure in the foreground laying down in a desert landscape. There is no doubt that Dali knew that painting as well, as Henry Rousseau was a French post-impressionist, and it was painted in 1897, over 30 years before Dali's persistence of memory. Here's Dali's description of the epiphany that resulted in this iconic work. I got up and went into the studio where I lit the light in order to cast a final glance, as is my habit, at the picture I was in the midst of painting. This picture represented a landscape near Port Legat, whose rocks were lighted by a transparent and melancholy twilight. In the foreground, an olive tree with its branches cut and without leaves. I knew that the atmosphere which I had succeeded in creating with this landscape was to serve as a setting for some idea, for some surprising image, but I did not in the least know what it was going to be. I was about to turn out the light when, instantaneously, I saw the solution. I saw three soft watches, one of them hanging lamentably on the branch of the olive tree. When Gala returned from the theater, the picture was completed. I made her sit down in front of it with her eyes shut. One, two, three, open your eyes. I looked intently at Gala's face and I saw upon it the unmistakable contraction of wonder and astonishment. I asked her, do you think that in three years you will have forgotten this image? No one can forget it once he has seen it, she said. It's important to mention that Dali did not know what he was going to paint in the landscape. He went on painting the landscape anyway. He was being led by an intuition that an answer of worthy merit would present itself. It is like the painting of the landscape posed a clear and present question, and it is his unconscious that provided the answer. This is an important insight to consider in your own work. If you feel a compulsion to create something great, just start. We take for granted this idea that great creative minds begin with a fully conceived masterpiece, right? That they set out to realize. This isn't true. Many times, the best process is just to begin working on a compulsion, like Dolly working on a landscape without a clear ending in mind. And this creates the problem in your mind that demands a worthwhile solution. If you want to write a brilliant story, start at a scene you feel compels you. Don't assume you have to start at the beginning, and don't assume you will know the end before you begin. Things often come in pieces. As you progress through the work, the pieces begin to take shape, and where they fit becomes more clear. It is the process of getting the wheels in motion, 
and thereby you create a context for problems and questions, which your unconscious mind must then solve. Part 3. Dolly in New York Club just off the great wide way in little old New York City for another session of some real old swingaroos. Well, let's hear from the head man himself of the ivory train, Pat Wilder. Hello, hello, hello. Yes, hello. The young club and this gentleman, yeah. On November 15th, 1934, many of the morning papers of New York City welcomed the arrival of Salvador Dali. The 22nd page of the New York Times read, in big capitals, Salvador Dali arrives. His steamship had docked the day before, and a press event had been set up with 25 of his paintings being on display, reporters asking curious questions about the meaning of his paintings. It was at this moment that Dali realized something. As Ian Gibson describes, the showman in Dali grasped immediately that big-hearted, somewhat naive America was his oyster, unquote. The more fanciful his symbols and explanations, the more the reporters furiously scribbled with their pencils. He was getting the attention he craved since he was a child and running with it. In one interview, he said, I do all my work subconsciously. I never use models or paint from life or landscapes. It is all imagination. That is, I see everything in a dream as I am working, and when I have finished a picture, I decide what the title is to be. Sometimes it takes a little time before I can figure out what I have painted. The scenes in my imagination all have Spain in the background my own Catalonia, or perhaps the south of Andalusia." Unquote. The success of his arrival was partly due to his pre-planning. He had made contact with Julian Levy, a prominent art dealer and owner of the Julian Levy Gallery in New York City. His arrival also coincided with a planned exhibition of his paintings, and a press document that was sent around to newspapers. It effectively portrayed Dali as the John the Baptist of surrealism in the United States. Although Dali was keen on business and promotion, it was largely his wife, Gala, who acted as his manager and handled the sale and payments of his work. One can attribute his success equally to her handlings of the many business elements of his unique career, which allowed him to effectively focus on his art and his persona in public appearances. When one reporter asked him what he thought of the surrealist movement, Dali proclaimed, I am surrealism. In another interview, when a reporter compared his paintings to that of an insane person, he replied, the only difference between me and a madman is that I am not mad. You can't be mine. 
solid, Fats. Hello. Hello and hello. What's next on the old oh, menu? Oh, listen, boy, you ain't heard nothing yet. <laughs> you know what? Yesterday morning, I woke up with Monday morning, and it's Monday morning. Here oh, it here it comes. On January 11th, 1935, he lectured at the Museum of Modern Art. The talk was titled Surrealist Paintings and Paranoic Images. He traced early anticipations of surrealism through his work, the works of Picasso and Ernst, and even featured 17th century engravings, he argued, were early precursors to the movement. One can certainly look at artists like Hieronymus Bosch from the 1400s even and argue that he was the first surrealist. Now, Dali went on to say that he was a disciple of Freud and that in his paintings he merely transcribed images thrown up by his subconscious. He stated, The subconscious has a symbolic language that is truly a universal language, for it does not depend on a special habitude or state of culture or intelligence, but speaks with the vocabulary of the great vital constants, sexual instinct, feeling of death, physical notion of the enigma of space. These vital constants are universally echoed in every human. To understand an aesthetic picture, training in appreciation is necessary, cultural and intellectual preparation. For surrealism, the only requirement is a receptive and intuitive human being. Unquote. One can imagine that the artists of the Surrealist movement back in Paris heard the news of Dali's rising fame and notoriety. He was taking the reins of the movement with his name at the forefront, and he was so damn effective at establishing his intention that to this day I find articles falsely calling him the father of Surrealism. But can you blame them? Dali did an incredible job in distorting that truth and magnetizing America's attention to his entertaining persona. It reminds me of the momentous occasion when the Beatles first touched foot in America and the reporters were just falling all over themselves with fascination for them and America quickly fell in love with their wit and charm. America's news and media machine is not the place of movements. It is the place of individuals and entertaining characters. It always has been, and it still is to this day. I think Dali was keenly aware of this, and it is an attribute to his success. In 1953, he wrote this in his journal. I have a Dalinian thought. The one thing the world will never have enough of is exaggeration. Andre Breton, the writer of the Surrealist Manifesto and the leader of the movement that eventually expelled Dali, felt a great distaste for his success in America and how he was riding a wave of commercialism that allowed Dali to become rich from his artwork and persona. Breton would later make an anagram of Salvador Dali's name, referring to him only as Avida dollars, for in Breton's mind, Dali's only motivation was now to be rich. But I disagree. Dali's motivation was to be known as the greatest painter in the world, 
wealth and notoriety were just the avenues to such a distinguished position. But wait, all that aside, what's wrong with making money? I mean, come on, Breton. Being a starving artist, that's cool and all, but finding a way to make a good living from a creative life? Now that can be near impossible to achieve. Uh, put your ego aside and give the man some credit. Say what you will about Dolly. I certainly have my reservations about him, but the man started from nothing and through his own creative vision became one of the most successful artists of all time. He started as a lonely boy in a small town in Spain who lost his mother at the age of 17, had a family history of schizophrenia. He later learned his great uncle had committed suicide by jumping from a balcony in a state of paranoia. And from those humble beginnings, he became known around the world. Say what you will about Avida Dollars, but you cannot deny the man was a prolific workaholic who more than a dozen times can be said to have achieved paintings on the level of masterpieces. In his diaries from the 1950s, you can read daily entries, which simply consist of Dali cataloging the small steps of progress he was making in the current paintings he was working on from day to day. I, for one, admire the crazy bastard. Art was truly his life, and we can learn a ton from both his creative vision to grow and innovate his art, but just as much from his unrelenting vision to succeed. Here's an entry from his 1952 diary, during which time he was living as a near hermit at his villa in Port Legat, Spain. Written July 16th. The outfit is essential in order to conquer. In all my life, the occasions are very rare that I have abased myself to civilian clothes. I am always dressed in the uniform of Dali. Today, I received an aging young man who came to beg my advice before he undertook a voyage to America. The problem interests me, so I dress as Dali and go down to meet him. His case is as follows. He wants to go to America and make a success of something, anything, so long as he succeeds. The mediocrity of life in America is too much for him. I ask him, do you have fixed habits? Do you like to eat well? He answers greedily, I can live on anything, dry beans and bread every day for years. That's bad, I tell him, dreamily and with a preoccupied manner. He's surprised. I explain to him, if you want to eat beans and bread every day, it will be very expensive. You must earn it by working very hard. On the other hand, if you can get used to living on caviar and champagne, it doesn't cost a thing. He smiles stupidly and thinks I'm joking. I have never made a joke in my life, I exclaim with authority. At once he starts listening humbly. Caviar and champagne are things that are offered you free by certain very distinguished ladies, wonderfully perfumed and surrounded by the most beautiful furniture in the world, but to get to them you must be quite different from the you who comes to see Dali with dirty fingernails while I have received you in uniform. Go and work on the problem of the dry beans. It's your problem. And besides, you have the prematurely wrinkled look of a dried bean. As for the spinach color of your shirt, make no mistake, that is exactly what characterizes failures and people 
who are old before their time. Part 4. The Hallucinogenic Torador. At the age of 64, Dali completed what many believe to be one of his greatest masterpieces. It is a strikingly enormous painting called the Hallucinogenic Torador. It stands 13 feet tall by 9 feet wide. It took him two years to complete it. The size is notable because Dali's most famous painting, The Persistence of Memory, is only 9 inches tall and 1 foot across, about the size of a laptop screen. And many of his surrealist movement period paintings were of such a smaller size too. But as he grew older, Dali's paintings grew larger. Perhaps he felt the need to eclipse his earlier work in all ways. Now, a side note, if you are listening along and want to view a high-resolution version of the painting we'll be discussing, please go to my site at mjdorian.com forward slash codex. On there, I have posted the best picture of this painting that I was able to track down. For some reason, the Wikipedia version is very small and at this time does no justice to this masterpiece. Back to the show. I have to say, I'd been staring at this freaking painting since I was 14 years old. And honestly, I never understood it. Until now. The hallucinogenic Torador captures everything about Dali. From his personal love of classical art, which was always a source of inspiration, to elements of his personal life. The first impression the painting gives you is the Venus de Milo, that famous Greek statue whose arms fell off over the course of time. The statue is seemingly echoing forward and backward through space, multiplying itself. The landscape, it defies all logic and reason, and is only held together by the force of its composition. As your eye wanders to the upper or lower sections, you notice seemingly random assortments of unrelated imagery. There is a boy dressed in a sailor's outfit in the lower right corner. Maybe this is Dolly as a child or a projection of his deceased older brother. Then a row of flies, an optical illusion of a bull, rows of dots, even a cubist-style version of the Venus de Milo in the lower left corner. So, what's happening here? It's about Spain, the atomic bomb, associative illusions, and Federico Garcia Lorca, Dali's close friend from his university days. In essence, this painting is a visit into Dali's mind during a kind of lucid stream of consciousness moment, perhaps a hypnagogic state. First, in attempting to understand the scope of his visual language here, uh, let's establish one idea. Dali was aiming to make a thoroughly Spanish painting. Notice the dominant colors in the painting are blood red and sandy yellow, which are the colors of the Spanish flag. Then consider the subject in the title, the hallucinogenic torador. A torador is a bullfighter. Bullfighting is one of Spain's oldest cultural traditions, old enough that historians trace its roots to prehistoric times, to bull worship and sacrifice in Mesopotamia and the Mediterranean regions. Dali would actually attend bullfights on occasion, 
and we know he would enjoy the attention of the crowd as he would sit in the distinguished seats of the front row, which were usually reserved only for royalty and celebrities. Important to note, his wife, Gala, detested the bullfighting tradition and thought it barbaric. Her portrait in the painting in the upper left corner, with her eyes shut, stoic, and stern, might reflect that feeling. But where's the bullfighter? If you look at the uppermost section of the painting, you, you do see a bullfighting arena, but no obvious torador. Well, that's because he's hidden. He's presented in several ways as an illusion, a hallucination. Dolly has included him in such a way that even once you see him, he will disappear and reappear before your eyes, just as he appeared and disappeared before Dolly's eyes when he first received the inspiration for this painting. The story goes like this, that Dolly was in a store in New York City and saw a box of colored pencils. On the box of colored pencils, there was an illustration of the Venus de Milo, and in the shadow that ran down the left side of her body, he saw the silhouette of a bullfighter lifting his cape upward to the sky. Dali has left a hint for us on how to see that silhouette figure that he saw in the Venus de Milo of the painting. Look at the strange illuminated figure on the left side of the painting, a little bit to the right of the close-up of the Venus de Milo's blue face. As a teenager, I, I always thought this figure was, was that of a woman throwing up a basin of water, but now it makes sense. This is the impression of a bullfighter. It's this impression that you can begin to see in the body of the middle Venus de Milo. The head of the bullfighter is her right breast, from our perspective. The raised arms are made from the shadow of her left arm and the upward angled line of her left breast. The leaning body of the bullfighter is the angle of the shadow on her stomach as it moves across, and his legs are extending down in the greenish shadow of her dress. If you are having trouble seeing it, keep looking back at that oddly illuminated figure on the middle left of the painting and comparing it with the shadow on the body of that central statue. Now, Dali being Dali, he was not satisfied to have only one Torador illusion in this painting. He took the challenge to make his own, and what I consider an even more ingenious illusion. It took me quite a few minutes of staring at the painting to figure it out, but I'll try my best to describe it so you can see it too. First, notice the strange green hue of the Venus de Milo. The statue again closest to the center of the painting. It's an unnatural green on her dress, because it isn't meant to be her dress. You must now try to see it as the bullfighter's tie, and as you follow the tie to its beginning, at the top of the greenish tie you can begin to discern a collar. Curiously, the white collar is made from the right side of the same statue, but also the backside of the statue behind it on the left. If you begin to see this central area as the shirt, tie, and collar of the bullfighter, then your imagination will start to make out a mouth and a nose as your eyes move upward, following the logical conclusion that 
A neck leads to a chin and a mouth. His nose is made from the shadow impression of her right breast, from our perspective. Do you see him now? The impression of the eyes is only half there and seems to come in and out, depending on the moment that you're staring at it or from your peripheral vision. Now, add his blood-red coat to the illusion. His coat is the striking red dress of the statue on the right. And there you have it. Hopefully, you have found the hallucinogenic torador. If you're having trouble, just try again by starting from the assumption that the greenish hue on the middle statue's dress is the long tie of the bullfighter. Now, let's examine another element. The connection to the writer, Federico Garcia Lorca, someone whom Dali considered one of his closest friends throughout his life and one of the most meaningful relationships he had in his life. Now Lorca, he was one of Spain's most celebrated writers and poets in the early 1900s. He was tragically assassinated on August 18th 1936, and his body was never found. It is rumored he was killed by Spanish nationalist forces, both for his outspoken socialist views and for his homosexuality. There was a period of time during their years at university when Dali and Lorca were undeniably close, closer than brothers. It seemed that Lorca left an impression on Dali's mind that equaled the importance he placed on his wife Gala. For the rest of his life, he could often be heard reciting excerpts from poems of Lorca's from memory. One of Lorca's first works to earn him wide praise was called Ode to Salvador Dali. When Dali first read it, he was moved beyond words, and upon reviewing that same poem, one finds verses that coincide with the imagery of this painting, the hallucinogenic torador. The poem is filled with vivid imagery referencing a rose of desire, a moon, which is also hidden in this painting, and even Venus, all of which are primary symbols in it. And then there is this passage, but also the rose of the garden where you live, always the rose, always, our north and south calm and ingathered like an eyeless statue, not knowing the buried struggle it provokes. It's also known that Lorca, who enjoyed the bullfighting tradition, mourned the death of a certain torador who was once mauled by a bull in the arena. So it isn't hard to imagine Dali's mind making the connection between the Spanish tradition of bullfighting the passionate friendship he shared with Lorca, the floating rose he places in the painting, the fact Lorca's body was never found after his assassination, and the link of that to the mysterious facelessness of the Torador, who is portrayed in the painting. And if you look closely at that strange hallucination of the Torador's face on what would be his left eye, you can see a tear coming down the most subtle element of the painting, ever so softly added. Now finally, the last association. There are colored circles above the bull's head, which are then echoed above and below as dots in rows which eventually morph into flies. 
The colorful dots explode from the wound of the bull, caused by the point at which the swords have punctured it. These are meant to be atoms. This was a common theme in Dali's paintings around this time, which he called his nuclear period. This period started after the invention and dropping of the atomic bombs. Dali was alive through both world wars and saw the shift in culture from the world before Einstein to the world after Einstein. The world of atoms no doubt fascinated Dali. One can imagine he saw it as the ultimate illusion. What we perceive in this world with our eyes is not the real atomic level of existence. It's a masterful illusion, comparable to the perception of a torridor in the shadow of Venus de Milo's rib section. The bull in the painting is said to be an infamous bull of Spanish culture named Islero, who in 1947 killed a celebrated torridor in the arena in brutal fashion. And Islero was then ceremoniously slain by the following bullfighter. But why are the atoms shooting out of the bull's wound? Well, here's an insight from all my research that no one else seems to have stumbled on. There was a Spanish government project that began in the 1950s to develop nuclear weapons for Spain. The name of the initiative was Project Islero. The goal of developing nuclear weapons for Spain was named after that infamous bull who killed the bullfighter. Is it possible Dali knew about that project? It seems almost too coincidental. Or was he simply using the association of a torador being killed to be symbolic of his own closest friend being assassinated and deliberately decorated the painting with symbols from the poem dedicated to him which moved him so deeply? And here we find ourselves again in Dali's Hall of Mirrors. There is the unmistakable feeling that we are still in the labyrinth. We found the child at its center and the ghost of Lorca that roams its halls. And we found the ingenious creative process of an artist many common observers might call insane. Still, although we are not lost, there are corridors through which we are denied entrance. So we will give the final words to the master of these halls, Dolly himself. These words coming from two entries in his diaries from 1953. I think the sweetest freedom for a man on earth consists in being able to live if he likes without having the need to work. I have been drawing from sunrise till night six mathematical faces of angels of such great and explosive beauty that it has left me exhausted and stiff. When I went to bed, I was reminded of Leonardo comparing death after a full life to the coming of sleep after a long day's work. Each morning, on awakening, I experience a supreme joy that I discover for the first time today to be Salvador Dali. And I wonder, full of amazement, what sorts of prodigies this Salvador Dali will do today. And each day, I find it more difficult to understand how other people can live without being Gala or Salvador Dali.
And there it is, Salvador Dali, Saint of Delusion. I hope you enjoyed the journey. I spent over a month reading three different books on the man, and I feel I understand the ins and outs of his mind. I also feel like I need a vacation from thinking about Dolly so much. Um, I hear Spain is nice this time of year. I haven't checked the full running time yet, but this is undoubtedly the longest installment of Creative Codex so far. I didn't expect it to be this much material, honestly. What kept me going deeper was my desire to understand the mind of this creative genius. And I was really impressed by the lucidity of his writings. He's often witty, poetic, charming, and simply entertaining. There's something else, too. Something I feel Dolly would want us to mention that we didn't cover. In 1986, the author, Ian Gibson, was writing a biography about Federico Garcia Lorca, and he sent a copy of the first volume to Dolly. This was three years before Dolly's death, in 1989. So for several months, there was silence, and then seemingly, out of nowhere, he receives a call from Dolly's assistant. He told Gibson to come at once to Dolly's home, that Dolly wanted to see Gibson immediately, ending with the phrase, if you don't come today, he may change his mind. The writer rushed to the airport, catching a plane from Madrid to Barcelona, and took a hired car, arriving the following evening. He was escorted through the villa, and sat down with the severely aged Dali. Gone was the exuberant and outgoing persona that the world had fallen in love with. He was a man who could hardly stand, with sunken cheeks and plastic tubes coming out of his nose. Dolly's shaking hand grasped Gibson's when he sat down, and it became clear that he wanted to confess something, to clear the slate, as he likely did not know how long he had left. Something he had been keeping secret for a long time. Gibson goes on to say, He was telling me how much Federico Garcia Lorca had loved him. The poet's love for him had been intensely physical, he said. No question of mere affection. Dolly had tried to return the passion, but was unable to. Instead, Lorca had made love in Dolly's presence to the skinny but powerfully seductive Margarita Manso. I came away with the clear impression that Dolly's friendship with the poet was perceived by him as one of the fundamental experiences of his life." Unquote. Dolly's relationship with Lorca was built on a deep friendship and mutual admiration. But Lorca was also gay, and felt a deeper love for Dolly that curiously did not make Dolly uncomfortable. It seems that there was a physical affection exchange between the two of them, and Dolly mentions in his confession that he had tried to return that physical passion, but was unable to. And there are letters that exist between Dolly and Lorca that mention some intimate experience between the two of them and a student named Margarita. Dali mentions in one of those letters how surprised he was that she was that open-minded to go along with their plan. Although Dali discovered that he wasn't gay after all, I think this early intimacy with Lorca colored his thoughts for the rest of his life. Looking back at his qualms with the Surrealist movement, uh, he would often criticize them for not tolerating homosexuality and topics of sexual exploration. 
They liked to champion this idea that they were so open-minded, and yet they, they denied those things, including the topics of mysticism and religious experiences that Dali mentioned earlier. In 1936, when he was told by an assistant of the awful news that Lorca had been assassinated, he gave the Spanish cry of admiration, often yelled after an admiral performance so often associated with the bullfights, Olé! And for the rest of his life, he would often be heard quoting and reciting the poems of Lorca in various scenarios. Then finally, I'd like to bring your attention back to the insight that Dali found so valuable to his creative process, that place between waking and dreaming. Now, please review the falling spoon method and try it for yourself. It's a wonderful exploration of the human mind, and it's surprisingly simple, effective, and might just give you something new and valuable along the way. All you need is a spoon, a plate, and a chair. On that note, please visit my site to see all the related photos and imagery from this episode at www.mjdorian.com forward slash codex. That's C-O-D-E-X. You'll find the paintings we discussed and also personal photos of Dali, photos with Dali and Lorca, as well as some odd ones like his GQ magazine cover. And I have a favor to ask you. If you enjoyed this episode, please... Share it with someone. Send it to a friend. Email it to someone who might find it insightful. Anyone who you can think would listen. We're a small show here, and word of mouth is really the only way this podcast grows. And I really want it to grow. That's one of my goals. I haven't found any other shows that dive as deep into creativity, psychology, and the history of genius as we do here at Creative Codex. So please share it. And I thank you in advance for that. If you wish to support the podcast, please visit my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash mjdorian. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash m-j-d-o-r-i-a-n. A huge thanks to those who already support the show. And I want to thank all the people who have reached out and given their thoughts and insights into the past episodes um, it's really a wonderful motivation for me to keep digging deeper and keep producing these. Uh, it's, it's been so great speaking with all of you, and I look forward to hearing more from you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. Until next time, I am MJ Dorian. This has been Creative Codex, wishing you fruitful travels into the labyrinth of your own mind.